0: started quickly because I know how strict they are with that t- timer. So, a lot of people asked me if I knew that I wanted to be a war photographer from early on, and I did not. Uh, this is a picture of me growing up in Connecticut uh, with my father. I had a fairly traditional upbringing. I was raised by hairdressers, both my mother and father. I had three older sisters. This is us in the 70s. And often on weekends, there were hairdresser parties most of the men dressed as women and uh, this was the norm for me and I learned very early on as a young girl to accept people for who they were Uh, and I was exposed to a lot of different types of people. (laughs) In 2000 I moved to India. Uh, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and a photographer and I was curious about the world and I moved there to try and make it uh, for the New York Times or whoever would take me. I had a roommate at the time who was traveling a lot to Afghanistan under the Taliban. It was before September 11th, so it wasn't really on people's radar. And he came home from a trip and he said, you know. You're a woman and you're interested in women's issues and you should go to Afghanistan and photograph women under the Taliban. And I thought, yeah, it's not a bad idea, okay. So I asked a few questions and I made the arrangements and the Taliban was giving visas to journalists at the time. They wanted to show that they had brought stability to Afghanistan. So I went and very quickly learned that as a woman I had access to women. I went into people's homes. Photography of any living thing was illegal at the time. So I had to run around with my cameras in a bag and if I wanted to shoot the streets, I had to sneak out my camera and take a picture very quickly and then put it back in my bag. I went into the women's hospitals and saw the conditions for women delivering babies. This is a typical scene of a woman giving birth in Afghanistan under the Taliban. And I went back after September 11th and covered the fall of the Taliban in Kandahar for the New York Times. Before 2003, I knew I wanted to be in Iraq. It was very clear we were going to war in Iraq. And I sort of raised my hand, but had no experience covering combat. Uh, I kept getting emails from my editor at Corbis. It was my photo agency at the time, and he kept saying, you know, you need to buy body armor and helmet. You need to get ready for war. And I was in complete denial. I just thought if I showed up there, it would be fine. So I'll just read an email exchange between myself and my editor. Dear Scott, I'm trying to buy body armor for my impending departure for Iraq, and I'm starting to break out in hives. I called A.K. war outfitters like you suggested, and they put me on hold for about three minutes knowing I was calling from Korea. I hung up. I then checked out the websites you recommended, and basically I have no idea what I'm looking at. Ballistic, six-point adjustable, tactical armor, etc. Please understand this language is not familiar to me. I grew up in Connecticut and was raised by hairdressers. <laughs> Would it be possible for you to call Second Chance in the States and explain to them that I am a photographer, I'm going to either Baghdad with the U.S. troops or into northern Iraq, and I'm not as worried about bullets as I am about shrapnel. I don't want anything too heavy. I guess that would mean ceramic plates. And I don't want to spend a million dollars, though my life may be worth a fraction of that one day. And these are my measurements. I'm sorry if this is too much information for you, but I photographed for 13 hours today. It's 1.30 in the morning, and I just want to get this planning over with. I'm 5'1". i am five foot one. I have no idea what the circumference of my head is for helmet size, and I certainly have never measured the distance between my nipples. I would go downstairs and ask someone at the hotel for a measuring tape, but I don't think the people at reception would send me anything to measure my head at 1.30 in the morning, because it would take them three hours with a Korean-English dictionary to figure out what the hell I'm asking for, and I'd surely jump out the window before going through that process right now. So let's just say I have a medium head. As for the vest, my waist is 29 inches, my chest is 34, and I have big boobs. (laughs) So that's how I got ready for the war in Iraq. I went in, and about six weeks later, Saddam Hussein fell from power, and I photographed the initial euphoria. It was incredible. People were defacing images of Saddam around the country. They threw flowers at, uh, at the American Humvees and pulled American soldiers out and kiss them on the streets. But very quickly, there were mass graves that were being unearthed, and we saw the devastation of years of dictatorship. These are bodies, and each one of these white sheets is what you see as a body. People would come and try and recognize their loved ones, the remains of their loved ones. There were tattered clothing. uh, Some, there were tags inside some of the bags. There were just small remnants except for bones, and people really tried to identify their loved ones. It was tragic. Immediately there was chaos after the fall of Saddam Hussein. The Americans had no plan for the aftermath, so they didn't prepare for how to provide for electricity, water, the basic elements. People were getting very frustrated and started protesting on the streets. There was looting going on around the country and fires literally burning across the country. People would go in and steal wires, cables, steel, and fires would start raging. This particular woman was looking for her husband who was working in a propane, a liquid gas factory, and she was walking directly towards the fire, and I stopped her and said, be careful, there are secondary explosions, and she just looked at me as if I were crazy. How would she not go to look for her husband? Then I wanted to go with the American soldiers. I wanted to hear their side of the story. So I started doing embeds with the US military. And they took us into the heart of the Sunni triangle uh, to look for the insurgency. And we were with them as they rounded up young men and put bags on their heads and zip ties on their wrists. They let us photograph, they let us have access to this because they felt they were doing the right thing. They were arresting insurgents. In 2004, I was invited uh, by Life magazine to photograph the wounded coming out of the Battle of Fallujah. It was one of the biggest battles that the U.S. military of my generation had ever seen. But as a journalist, I had never seen wounded American soldiers. It was something the U.S. military learned very early on was best to shield from the media. So I was a bit skeptical when we were invited in. When I arrived, very quickly they took me to see this scene. This is a C-17 cargo aircraft that had been stripped. The entire inside was stripped and loaded with wounded soldiers that were being flown to Germany for treatment. I then saw young men who were being flown to Germany like this. Uh, It was astonishing. I had never had access to anything like this. When I got back to America, I filed the images very quickly to Life magazine, sure that when the American public saw these pictures, it would turn the tide against the war. Life magazine did not publish the images right away. They held them through November and December, January and February. And in February, I got a call from my editor at Life magazine and she said, I hate to write you this email, but we will never publish your images of wounded soldiers because my editor feels they're too strong for the American public to handle. So I called my editor at the New York Times and I begged her to look at them and within 10 days they were in in the New York Times Magazine. In 2004, I started working in Darfur Uh, Sudanese President Bashir did not want journalists entering and covering Darfur, so we had to walk in through neighboring Chad. We walked in and saw burnt-out villages. Uh, There were bodies across the desert. We saw villages burning in front of us. The Sudanese government was so brazen that when we were with African Union troops, they would often send in Janjaweed, who were backed by the Sudanese government, to burn villages in front of the peacekeepers because they knew it wasn't the mandate of the peacekeepers to stop them. We saw thousands of displaced within Darfur and in neighboring Chad, And in 2006, we had heard there had been a massacre of Sudanese government soldiers, and President Bashir publicly said absolutely no government soldiers were killed. And we wanted to we wanted to ascertain what had happened. I was working with Lydia Polgreen for the New York Times and we were in Chad at the time. So we went to the border of Darfur and we found a truckload of Sudanese Liberation Army rebels and we, we begged them to take us into Darfur. And they said, be careful because there are Antonovs, the Russian aircraft flying overhead. And if they know journalists have gone in, they'll bomb you. And we said, well, in order to report on it for the New York Times, we have to see it with our own eyes. So when we went, we saw dozens of bodies across the desert. These are all Sudanese government soldiers. And this was published in the New York Times. And the next day, President Bashir couldn't say anything. He couldn't deny it. And to me, this is really the power of an image. In 2008, I got a call from a very dear friend, Dexter Filkins, who is a renowned war correspondent, and we had worked together for about a decade at the time. And he said, I got a great assignment for us, dude. And I knew that it was a problem. And so it was, he wanted to meet the Taliban. And uh, it was in Pakistan in the tribal area. And he went ahead and spent about a month setting up access through local journalists, translators, and drivers. And finally he called me a few days before and he said, okay, I'm ready for you. So I flew in and the night before we were supposed to meet the Taliban, we got a call from Haji Namdar who was the commander and he said, you're welcome to come tomorrow, but the one thing you cannot do is bring a woman. So Dexter and I sort of looked at each other and we said, well, we're not separating. And Halim, our translator, who was very sympathetic to the Taliban, was tortured. He said, what will we do? They've said, don't bring a woman. We can't bring a woman. It's the Taliban. And so then he said, I know. No Taliban would ever leave his wife alone in a strange city. So you must come. You are Mr. Dexter's wife. So he said, okay. So we get all dressed up and we go to meet the Taliban and we drive in and Dexter and Halim go inside and get permission for me to come in. And I get permission so I walk inside and it's a very small room full of Taliban fighters. And I walk in, and I sort of... It was very awkward, obviously. I'm fully veiled, and no women ever are in these scenes. And I sit down next to Dexter as his wife, and Dexter says, Hey, Haji Namdar, uh, thanks for letting my wife come, and and do you mind if my wife takes a few photos? (laughs) So uh, I took out this massive camera and was trying to be very discreet and started taking pictures of Haji Namdar. And suddenly, about 15 minutes later, this guy came over to me, and he says... And everyone started getting very fidgety, and I thought, oh no, now they're going to kill us. Like, here we are, two Americans, tribal area, Pakistan. And they said, Madam, we would like to serve you tea, but we don't know how you can drink tea through your veil. And so I sort of was laughing to myself, thinking, this is so ridiculous. I'm meeting with the Taliban, and they're worried about giving me tea. But in this part of the world, it's very hospitable, and you must serve your guests tea. So the man says, please, madam, go stand in the corner of the room, and it's a very small room, and put your back to us, and lift your veil, and drink your tea, and then you can join us. So that's how I met the Taliban. In 2009, I was working on a story for National Geographic magazine on women in Afghanistan, and I wanted to photograph maternal mortality because Afghanistan has one of the highest rates of women dying in childbirth in the world. So I went to very remote areas, because often women die in childbirth because they cannot access hospitals, clinics, or doctors. So I went to remote areas and was visiting these clinics. And on the way back, I saw these two women on the side of the mountain. And after having worked a decade in Afghanistan, I knew it was rare that there was no man. So my translator, Dr. Ziba, and I stopped the car and we ran up and said, what's going on? Why are you standing on the side of the road? And it turned out that Nor Nisa, the woman on the right, was in labor and her water had just broken and her husband's first wife died in childbirth. And he was so determined to not let her die in childbirth that he borrowed money from villagers and he rented a car to get her to the hospital. And when we found them, the car had just broken down. So I said, please, get in my car, I'll drive you to the hospital. And she said, we need permission from her husband. And so I sent Dr. Ziba along the one road that went through the province to find her husband. And she did, she found him very quickly and they came back and the whole family piled in my car and she vomited the entire way to the hospital because I don't think she had ever been in a car and she delivered safely. And everyone always asked me if I continued photographing her birth and I did not because I changed the story with my presence as a journalist and I'm not sure she would have made it to the hospital had I not given her a ride. On December 1st, 2009, I did an embed with the medevac. Those are the the teams of uh, troops that go in and pick up the wounded. We got a call for an alpha, which is the most gravely wounded soldier. And things happen very, very quickly. Uh, It's life or death, every second matters. We jumped in the Black Hawk. We flew about two to three minutes to the middle of the fields. It was in uh, southern Afghanistan. And they placed this young man on the floor of the Black Hawk helicopter. This is all through night vision goggles because it's pitch black. It's very hostile terrain. They flew him back to the field hospital and he had lost eight to nine pints of blood. I was photographing in an almost silent tent Uh, In the middle of this, an army officer came over to me and said, stop photographing, please. And I put my camera down, and I wanted to be respectful because someone was on the verge of dying. And I said, I have permission, and... I didn't say anything else, and then suddenly two other men in the room stood up and said, let her photograph, she needs to be here, it's very important for Americans to see this. So they had a discussion amongst themselves, and I was allowed to continue shooting. But I was very sort of aware of the quietness of the room and the fact that someone was near death, and so I shot very little, I shot a few frames every few minutes, and eventually he died and they said a prayer for him, they laid a flag over his body and said a prayer about. An hour or two after he passed away, two marine uh, public affairs officers came to my tent, and they said, you cannot send those photos until the next of kin has been notified. But as a journalist, we're not allowed to reach out to the parents or to the next of kin. We have to wait for them to contact us. So on December 12th, I got a phone call from his father. I was flying back to America, and I had a voicemail from his father. And he said, I understand you were with my son when he died. Please call me back. And my heart stopped. And on the 13th, I called him back, and we spoke for about an hour. And he said, the only thing I know about my son is that he was killed in combat operations in Afghanistan. Can you please tell me every single thing you know? Because I want to be with him until the moment of his death. And so we had a very long talk, and I told him very difficult details. And at the end of the conversation, he asked to see the photos. And I had to send him the photos because I needed his permission in order to publish them. And in the end, they decided not to allow me permission to publish anything that showed the face. So this is one of the very few pictures I was able to publish. In 2011, I wanted to cover the uprising in Libya. Uh, I had missed the uprising in Tunisia and Egypt, and I wanted to be in Libya. So like so many journalists, I snuck in through Egypt into Eastern Libya, and very quickly I started moving forward on the front line. Uh, I moved forward with the rebels. They had very little fighting experience. They didn't really understand how to operate weapons at that point. It was the beginning, beginning of the uprising. Gaddafi's military, on the other hand, was using airstrikes, helicopter gunships. They would come in above our heads and shoot 50 caliber bullets all around us, and often the guys we were with were just shooting up into the air with Kalashnikovs and throwing rocks up into the air. Sometimes we would hear the hum of an aircraft and a bomb would land right next to us. And so for two weeks we covered the front line and we moved back and forth as the front line shifted. And often the rebels gained ground and moved west or Qaddafi's troops would gain ground and move east. And on, March, on uh, March 15th, 2011, we were in the town of Ajdabia and the front line was moving very quickly. Um, we knew that it was about to fall, the city of Ajdabia, but we were making a decision. We were four journalists for the New York Times, Tyler Hicks, Steve Farrell, Anthony Shadid, and myself, and we were in one vehicle. And the fighting moved very quickly. We stayed at the front line too long. We were fighting amongst ourselves as to how long to stay. Uh, eventually, we decided to pull east and we ran directly into one of Gaddafi's checkpoints. Our, our driver was killed in that moment. Uh, We were each ripped out of the car, uh, and eventually we made a run for it. We saw a building off to the side. We ran for cover behind that building, and we're told to lie face down in the dirt. Each one of us had our arms tied behind our backs. We had guns put to our heads, and they were deciding whether to kill us. And in the end, they did not kill us. The commander came over and said, you can't shoot them, they're American. So they decided not to shoot us. Instead, they tied our ankles together, our wrists behind our back, and they placed us in vehicles on the front line, and they kept us there for hours as bullets rained around us, and mortars and tank rounds also fell all around us. And for three days, they threatened us with death, they punched us in the face, they kept us bound and blindfolded, and hit my male colleagues on the back of the heads with gun butts. And for me, they groped me repeatedly. We, we were shifted from place to place and put in prison. And eventually, we were flown to Tripoli. And after six days, we were released from captivity. Thank you.